I uh, am grateful to be with you this morning. Why don't we stand together and open our Bibles? You can follow along on the screen if you need to. To Acts chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 38, 39, and 40 together, looking at 39 and 40 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. The word of the Lord. Amen. Would you raise your hands and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have just read of your promises, and there is no reason that you need to promise us anything. You owe us nothing. And yet, for your own good pleasure, you have promised us everything. You who did not spare your own son but delivered him over for us all, you promised to give us all things. Father, we praise you, we thank you, we glorify you, and we ask that as we listen to your word this morning, you would make our hearts tender to receive, that you would fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit, with insight, with knowledge, with wisdom. Father, I pray that we would be wise, as Proverbs will teach us to be, but not wise with the wisdom of the world, wise with the wisdom that comes from your word through its revelation and the Holy Spirit in our minds and hearts. And so, Father, we pray that you would do this now. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. As I said, we read 38, 39, and 40. What Peter says when he says, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. When he says that, that is not a separate statement, a separate thought, disconnected from what we talked about last week. But it is a continuation of what he told the Jews who were asking Peter, what shall we do? So you remember the big picture. The day of Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit comes down upon the the disciples and the apostles who are gathered together and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in languages that They wouldn't have known naturally. There's fire on their heads and this crowd gathers and they say, what's going on? They see the power that's before them and they ask what's going on. And then Peter preaches the gospel to them, the the news of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection and all the things that that entails and brings it to bear on them. And he says, you crucified the Messiah. They hear the word of the Lord. They hear it and they're cut to the quick and they say, what on earth are we supposed to do? Is there any hope? And so he says, yeah, there is hope. Repent and be baptized, and you'll receive forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in our passage this morning, verse 39, for the promise is for you. For the promise is for you. It is this promise that I want to consider with all of you this morning. I've titled this sermon, A Far-Reaching Promise, and I want to start by thinking about what this promise is and what the implications of the promise are for us. 
And because this is not just a promise to individuals, but to families and to generations, as is laid out so clearly for us, I want to consider the contrast that Peter sets up between the promised generations to you and to your children and another generation in verse 40. What's the other generation? The perverse generation. So I want to consider uh, the implications of being a part of the promised generation as, a, as opposed to the, per, the perverse generation or the crooked generation. The promise is for you. But what is this promise? What is it that Peter is referring to? If we were to scan through the verses that we've already been preaching and looking at over the last number of weeks, we would recognize that there is no point at which Peter makes a specific promise where he says, I, I promise you this, or God promises you this in particular. So we have to look back at the passages and we have to identify what Peter might be referring to. Is Peter referring to the quote from Joel, the prophet Joel in the Old Testament, when he says, and it shall be in the last days, says the Lord, that your sons and daughters will see visions and dream dreams. I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Is that the promise that's being referred to here? Perhaps. Is it when Peter had said to them, repent and be baptized, and you will receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Is that the promise that is being referred to now by Peter just one verse later? Perhaps. Certainly, I believe, the promise that Peter is referring to is connected integrally and represented in, in both of these statements. But I also believe that it would be a mistake to only view the promise he's referencing as being something he had just said. Peter is speaking about the salvation of Christ, but when he's speaking about the promise being for you and for your children and for all who are far off, he isn't just referring to the statement he had just made prior. He's referring to the great magnificent promises of God throughout all of the ages, throughout all of the scriptures. In other words, when Peter refers to the promise, he is not referring to something narrow. He's referring to something magnificently wide and deep. He isn't referring to one or two statements that he had made in his sermon, but he's speaking of the great promise of God that acts as the umbrella for all that scripture teaches and declares. Throughout Peter's writing, we haven't gotten to all of it yet. We're still in chapter 2, all right? But throughout his speaking, throughout his sermons, we're going to see more of this. If we were to look at his epistles, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 3 Peter. If we were to look at those things, Peter speaks about God's promises a number of times. They're a theme. This theme that's woven through his teaching and acts. And it is so because Peter wrote to the Jews... Paul was the missionary to the Gentiles, predominantly. Peter, predominantly uh, the, the spokesperson to, to the Jewish people. And the Jews, his audience here, would have known exactly what he meant when he talked about a promise being for them. They were, after all, what? They were the children of the what? Promise. 
The whole of the Old Testament is narrated down the tracks of God's promise concerning hope and salvation for a world that had rebelled and turned away from him. Top to bottom, that is the message that the Scripture declares. Salvation for the lost, hope for the hopeless, peace with God, with those who had made war on him. This is the main, the central promise of God throughout all of the Scripture. Around it, there are woven other promises that tie into it. And I think it's helpful, as I was thinking about the idea of God's promises in the Scripture and how they interrelate, I think it's helpful to think about God's promise like a rope. A rope. There are various threads. Some are more core threads than others, but there are various threads. They're all interwoven. They're braided. When you pull on the rope, they all pull in the same direction. They aren't going here and there and to different spots. I think God's promises are like a rope. A couple of summers ago, I was um, going rock climbing for the first time with some guys down in the Red River Gorge. And when you're climbing, you want to make sure that you have the appropriate gear. It's very important that you don't go cheap when you're attempting to climb. You want to make sure you have the right stuff. If your gear fails you, you know, I play guitar. I used to. Still do. In my bedroom. If, a, if you know, I had, we had gear failures up here from time to time. Still do. If something fails, no one dies. And I hate to break it to all the guitar players out there, but probably nobody in the congregation even notices. If gear fails when you're climbing, you've got serious problems. You don't want anything to fail. Because climbing ropes are all designed for you to hang your life from, they are made with tinsel strength that's very high. That means you can, you can apply a lot of for, downward force, downward pressure to that rope, and it's not going to break. They can hold a lot of weight, and they're designed to be used in environments that are going to be harsh. Climbing ropes are scraped and pulled across rocks. They're often exposed to the elements, to the hot sun. They're designed to have to hold up. These ropes are made with multiple strands braided together to achieve strength and resilience that are needed to support your life in the most harshest of conditions. When considering the promise that Peter is referencing in our passage, it's helpful analogy to think about that promise, like a climbing rope. Climbing rope. First of all, think about this. It's far-reaching. It stretches an incredibly long way. If I was to have brought one of the ropes that I used here this morning, and if I was to walk over to this side of the platform and, and hurled it across the entire platform, it would have gone all the way across the platform and longer. All the way from one end to the other. This is the timeline of God's promises. They stretch as one continual force across the entire timeline of history, past, present, and future. And so here, we hear in our passage that Peter speaks of this promise. And we, like the Jews he was speaking to in that day, remember, if we know the Old Testament, that very, very, very long ago, at the beginning of the story of the Bible, right after the fall in the Garden of Eden, we're told that God told Satan 
that he was going to put enmity between him, you, referring to Satan, and the woman, the the serpent and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. This is known as the first good news, the first prophecy of promise about what was going to come. The seed of a woman? That, that doesn't fit what I learned in my biology class. What, what on earth is all that about? Well, it's an obscure promise about the Messiah being, being born of Mary, a virgin, by the Holy Spirit. And this promise that seems pretty cloaked back in Genesis is added to again and again throughout all of the Old Testament. And it was fulfilled in Christ, but the rope doesn't end with Christ. It continues on. It's been a couple thousand years since Christ was, was, was put to death and was resurrected. And yet we still have this promise to hang on to. The promise is still the rope that God gives to us to be saved by. Not just that he will anymore, but that he has. That it's complete. But this promise that was foretold at the beginning of the world is still for you today. This leads to the second point about God's promises. Just as climbing ropes have many strands that are interwoven together, God gives many promises that are all interwoven together as well. He made promises to many people, Abraham, Adam, Moses, David, Jesus makes promises to his disciples and to the Jews and to the Samaritans that he talked with and walked with as he lived out of his time on earth. And though those promises are all spoken to different people throughout the course of history, and though the promises aren't all exactly the same, there are different things that are said to different people, they all come to the same end. They all fit together. They are all interwoven for one grand, glorious, divine purpose. We might be tempted to think, and it is sometimes taught, that God's promises are more like the sort of rope that an inmate inmate might use to escape from prison. That there is a rope, but there are many different sections of cloth, different colors, different materials, taken from clothes, taken from bed sheets, and tied together in some sort of crude fashion to make a section long enough to rappel down the wall with. But this is not how the Scripture speaks about God's promises. They aren't all separate. They aren't disjointed from each other. God promises, God's promises, <coughs> excuse me, all flow together and they pull in the same direction. They don't start and stop. They don't change over the course of time. They are all true for God's people throughout all of time. They are yes and amen in Christ. And that is why the writers of the New Testament have no problem applying the promises that are given in the Old Testament to those who live in the New Testament. Because they recognize, Peter and Paul and others, recognize that there is a clear continuance and continuity in God's work and his ways throughout the Old and the New. It's not disjointed. He didn't act one way then and he's changed it now. He's the same. There's clear continuance and continuance and continuity in God's working and ways. 
Verse 39 in our passage, if we look back at it, is a good example of such a text. Earlier I asked the question, what is the promise being referred to by Peter? What is it? Peter now, uh, Peter nowhere spells out exactly what the promise is to his audience. So he says this promise, without ever having specifically made a promise, but he nowhere spells out exactly what the promise to his, is to his audience because they would have all known what he was referencing. They knew the promises of the Old Testament. They were children of the promise, as we said earlier. And perhaps the most fundamental the most foundational promise in all of the Old Testament. It's repeated multiple times throughout the Old Testament and alluded to in the New, is the promise that God had made with their forefather, Isaac, Abraham. And he said this. This is Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant between you and me and your descendants after you throughout their generations as an everlasting and eternal covenant to be your God and to be God to your descendants after you. That's what he had told Abraham. Father Abraham, remember these are his descendants. I have established my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants. This is the promise that would have been on every listener's mind when Peter said that the promise was for them and for their children. This was God's promise to their forefathers. This was the promise that set them apart as a people. This was like the Magna Carta for them, you know, or the Declaration of whatever, whatever document. You, it's foundational to who they were. Peter's paraphrasing essentially God's promise to Abraham back to them. We have to recognize that. So now that we've consider what what this promise was, I would like to consider with you for a few moments who this promise applied to. To whom does this promise apply? It's a wonderful thing to realize that Peter is here reiterating to this crowd of Jews that God, the promise he gave to their forefather Abraham was for them. Specifically, it's a wonderful thing to recognize that. And I say that because if you think about it, remember, we, we've already talked about this, so we don't need to rehash, but this crowd was not just any crowd. This was the crowd, it's at least some of them were the crowd of those that had just weeks before shouted that they wanted the Messiah crucified. There are people here who were complicit in the declaration to Pilate their blood, his blood, Jesus' blood, be upon our heads and the heads of our children. And if you recognize that, then you understand the desperate nature of them asking, what can we do? And if you understand the desperate nature of them looking at Peter, saying, what on earth can we do? Then you start to understand the beauty and the wonder and the glory of him saying, the promise is for you. You haven't been rejected you can still have it. It's not enough to have a general promise from Peter. It wouldn't have cut the mustard. They needed to know specifically for them that they, they could still have it. It's not enough to 
climb knowing that a rope exists. You have to have it in your possession. You have to have it in your hand if it's going to be any use to you. And this is what Peter's telling them. The promise is for you. It doesn't just exist out there for some people. God's offering it to you. You can have it. Grab hold of it. And therefore, after telling the people to repent and find salvation, he adds, the promise for, for the promise is for you. General declarations are not enough. And so I want to remind you this morning, it is not enough that God so loved the world if you do not know that God loves you. It is not enough that Jesus is the Prince of Peace if you have not heard him say to you, my peace I leave with you. It is not enough that Peter promised the gift of the Holy Spirit if you have not received any of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. General declarations, general promises are not enough. Don't go through this life considering what is general, good enough to cover you specifically. That's not the way that God works. He offers you a specific promise, and he calls on you to grab hold specifically of that promise yourself and live by it. We must have the promises of God given and applied to us personally. Here, Peter was doing just this. The crowd was pitiable, scared, guilty. And Peter reached up, and he pulled down the rope for them, down from the hook, saying, here it is. This is for you, specifically. But the promise was not only just for them, those that were of the age where they were listening to Peter and able to discern the things that he was saying and understand all of it for themselves. The promise, when it was initially given, was not just for Abraham, but for his offspring as well. And Peter goes on to say that just as it was for Abraham, it is for them. The promise is for you and for your children and for for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Peter is standing there offering them and you a rope. You're part of those who were far off. He's speaking to Jews. We would be all included in those that have been brought near. Ephesians 3, 2, 13. We've been brought near. We were far off, but we've been brought near. And Peter is saying that God's promise is for you. And if you've been brought near then you are like the Jews that he spoke to in that day. And when you've been brought near, when you're brought into the covenant with God, when you've grabbed hold of his promises, the beauty of what Scripture says is that it is for your children as well because God works in this way. He always has and he always will. God works generationally with those that love him. That's why a number of years ago when we were thinking about our our mission statement, we decided that it was going to have this aspect in it, reaching and raising generations for Christ, teaching them his word. It is the primary way, working through generations, is the primary way that God has chosen to work ever since the beginning. Therefore, the Apostle Paul can say to Gentile converts, non-Jews, that You are all sons of God through faith in Christ, for you all were baptized into Jesus and have been clothed with Christ. There is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male nor female, all are in one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendant. 
heirs according to the promise. God works through generation. Today, God has given you an incredible promise. It is the promise that God promised to Adam and to Abraham and to David. It is the promise not only of being part of God's chosen people, but the promise of being brought into his family. And God's generosity reaches so far that he doesn't just promise to be your God, he also promises that he'll be your children's God. The promise is for you and for your children. So I'd like to take the time we have remaining and end by considering a couple of implications based on this promise. After all, it's one thing to know that something is promised to you. It's another to pursue what is promised. Both are required. Even with God's promise directly to Abraham back in Genesis, he said, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this for you. And you shall do this. And your generation shall do this. So there's always expectations that God has of us. I'd like to consider a couple of those with you this morning. <clears throat> Peter told his audience that the promise was for them specifically so that they might have confidence, so that they might have the strength of being relieved and knowing that God was not opposed to them, but that he would welcome them. He seeks to give them confidence and hope, especially in light of the curse that they had called down on themselves. God has promised himself to them if they're willing to pursue him. He will reveal himself. He won't hide his face. If they seek him, they'll find him. And they won't just find him, but they will be embraced by him, loved by him, cared for by him. Even as Peter speaks, I was thinking about this. He's speaking of God's great promise, seeking to give these people confidence in coming to God and pursuing God and grabbing hold of that promised rope that he had held out for them. And it wasn't all that long before that Peter can remember a time that he had been with Jesus and the role he played was the role of shooing the little children away that wanted to come near to Christ. He had said, the master has no time for you. Shoo. And Jesus had rebuked him that, that evening, saying, let the little children come to me. Do not send them away, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Can you imagine the strength and the confidence that those children and their parents would have had as they ran to Jesus after he had uttered those words to them? The same thing has to be going on here, I think, in Peter. Peter is not only saying to repent and seek the Lord, he's also saying that God is anticipating, anticipating them. The promise is for you. The promise is for you. Come to him. This great promise is for you. It's given so that you might have confidence. That's the purpose. Going back again to the analogy of the rope, when I was trying to scale up the wall, I wasn't doing a great job. It was my first time. But while I was trying, emphasis on trying, 
to scale up the wall. There were a number of times where I was instructed to make maneuvers that I, I thought were absolutely impossible. You know, they'd tell you to put your toe on this little nub in the rock and step on it. You know, it's like, how do you step on something that's straight up and down? You know, the gravity doesn't work that way. But they were telling me to do this or do that, or there were times where I maybe just thought I would try and do something gutsy. And I was only willing to do those things because I knew that I had a rope that was going to keep me secure so that if I fell, if I, if I made a mistake, because, you know, you fall, you're not going to die. That's the only reason I was willing to, to take those risks that I took. And it works the same way in our lives of faith, really. The only way you're going to glorify God in your life, the only way you're going to do what he expects you and calls you to do, the only way you're going to walk out on the water of whatever he's calling you to do is if you're willing to have confidence, not just at, not in yourself. We see how confidence in yourself treated Peter, right? He got a good lesson there. No, we don't need confidence in ourselves. We need confidence in God. And in what in God? Well, as it relates to us, our confidence in God is found in the things that he says about himself and the things that he says to us and, and most significantly, in the, th- in the promises that he makes to us. Are you going to believe the promises of God? If you do, it's going to give you confidence. That confidence is going to help you do the things that he calls you to do. So these things all, these things all work together. God says the promise is for you so that you might have confidence. God's promises will hold you. They'll never fail. So this morning I'd say to you, live like someone who has the promises of Jesus in your hand. Run the race that he's calling you to run like the little children probably ran to Christ after hearing that he welcomed them. After he rebuked the disciples and said, stop it. Let them come. Run like that. Be bold in your life of faith, take risks. Take risks. With regard to the promise not just being for you individually, but again, there's this element of generations laid out so clearly in the text. With regard to the promise being for our children, I would say to you as parents, do not parent out of fear, but rather parent with steady confidence, trusting that God's promises apply to you and to your children, then that he loves them and that he will care for them better than you can care for them yourself. Parent with godly expectations rather than with ennobled worry. How often do we ennoble our worries and dress them up to seem like they should have significance? Godly confidence and expectations over ennobled worry. Finally, I'd say... Bring your children to the Lord. Bring your children to the Lord in baptism. What is this worry that baptism may be in vain? What is this worry? Water is nothing. The water is not holy. You either have the promise of God or you don't. The promise either extends down to your children or it does not. It is, it is only the promise of God that makes baptism effective. And so if he's given you his promises, then bring your children to him because that's the way he works. The second thing that I want to say after talking about confidence 
is that I want to say that by implication, if you are part of the promised generation, the people who receive the promises of God, if they're for you, then you stand apart from the perverse generation, as I said at the beginning of our time. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words. Now, this is not directly in Peter's sermon. This is now an elaboration on, this is a statement about what Peter was elaborating on, the themes that he was elaborating on again and again. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting. So there's this idea of continuing in Peter. He kept on testifying and exhorting the crowd, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. These two messages fit together. There's no discordance between Peter reminding the people that God's promises for them specifically and his exhortation to them specifically to be saved from this perverse or crooked generation. We need both of those things. All throughout the Old Testament, the the Israelites knew that they were chosen. They knew that they were special. And yet, in part, it was that very fact that led them into presumption, a presumption that allowed all sorts of sins and idolatries to creep in and to pollute their hearts. We would do well to remember that when Peter is exhorting them to be saved from this perverse generation, that perverse generation that he's referencing was not the pagan Romans. It was the Jews themselves. The perversion of their generation didn't look at that time like child sacrifice and pagan worship. They worshiped in the temple. But it was the Jews' crookedness and perversity that Jesus opposed so strongly. And we are by this thereby warned that the perverse generation that we must be saved from is always much closer to home than we would like to admit, much nearer and dearer to our own hearts than we might imagine it to be. It would be very convenient for us to be warned away from all the idolatries that exist in the the Far East, all the forms of worship that may be practiced among the Hindus or some of the African spiritualism that's out there. But these are not the idolatries that are seeking to win our hearts. The things that tempt us appear to our minds much more slight, more acceptable, or at least more manageable. When we hear the term perverse, I know I've been switching sort of back and forth between perverse and crooked. The reason is is that when we hear the term perverse, we, we think of something that is clearly gross and wrong, obviously so. But the Greek word, and, and even the etymology of the word perverse, gives the connotation of something being crooked or bent as opposed to straight. And the thing about something that's crooked is that often you can't tell that it's crooked right away, right? It's, it's, it's easy to tell when you're at Home Depot that all the boards are crooked because you're looking at Home Depot. No, it's <laughs> a joke. It's easier to tell if a board is, is bent if it's long rather than if it's a short one, 
When something is bent slightly, you can't tell right away. But as you go further out from the start over time, you can tell that you're off kilter. But you can't necessarily in the moment. What Peter is warning them away from is something that isn't clearly dangerous and damnable to them. That's why he's so persistent. That's why he says it over and over again. And as we read the text, we get the sense that he's sort of being obnoxious about it. If it was so clear to them, why would have they needed such a solemn warning? There is never a short supply of those who are willing to say that Jesus is their Savior, and yet they will not abandon those things that seem manageable but are in the end damnable to their souls. There's never any short supply of those type of people in this world. They'll take Jesus, but they're not going to abandon the confidence they have in their own morality, their own merit, their own good works. They will never abandon their lustful pleasures. They will never, never abandon the convenience of their sins. They will never abandon or surrender their friendship with the world, their love for unbelievers and the ways of unbelievers. They want to have it both ways. They want the promise to apply to them. They want the promise for their generations, but they don't want to be distinct from the world, especially the parts that seem manageable that benefit them in some way. And here we have Peter putting a stake right in the heart of that, saying you must be saved from this perverse generation. And again, I will stress this to you. He's not just saying, don't have your kids in public school. That would be, that's an easy enough thing to do. He's saying the thing that they want, the the perversity that's in their hearts, be saved from it. He's not talking about the danger, the perversity out there or over here. It's he's speaking to them about their hearts. Claiming God's promise for you and for your family without living a life of holiness, fleeing the crookedness of this world that you desire is like insisting you have climbing rope. I've got it. I've got the promise. It applies to me. It applies to my children. And yet you leave it in your bag when you climb. That's that's what you're doing. It's insanity. If you're going to claim the promises of God, then you're going to live like someone who's being held by the promises of God. Strikingly, Peter says the same exact thing in his second epistle, in his second letter. I was just kind of going through some of the things that Peter wrote as I was thinking about the sermon And in 2 Peter, he says, God has granted to us precious and magnificent promises so that by them you might become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, the perverse generation. Now, for this very reason, applying also, apply all diligence. In your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, and it goes on, perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. So there's this elaboration where he talks about the effects of, the, of pursuing 
righteousness and forsaking worldliness. He goes on to say, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Again, he's holding it up there and what God expects, but he's also giving confidence. He wants to inspire confidence in those that read his letter. For in this way, the entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Abundantly supplied. Notice that again, Peter starts by speaking about the great promise. And instead of treating the promise, though, like some sort of cosmic punch pass to eternity, he says that God's promise should serve as the very reason, the motivation why we are are so diligent in leaving the crookedness of this world behind and clinging to Christ. The message of Christianity so often today is the exact opposite of Peter's. American Christianity so often says, don't sweat the crookedness of this generation. You've got God's promises. He knows you're a sinner. What's the big deal? It's such an inversion and a terrible one of what Peter's saying so clearly here and elsewhere. But Scripture calls us to something much higher. We are warned to be saved from this crooked or perverse generation. And on the theme of generations... You must also call your children to reject, to run from, to give up, to be saved from this perverse generation. And again, not just everything out there, the things that are in their heart that are perverse must be abandoned. It is a glorious and a wonderful thing to to claim God's promises for you and for your children. It's right. You should. But it can be a temptation to claim the promises for them without delivering the warnings to them or having the expectations for them that they will leave this world behind and that we, and we must do that. We must claim God's promises for them and call them the way that God calls them in Scripture. So know that God's promise is for them and live with confidence in that promise. God has given it to you for that reason. And also, call yourself and them to live in line with the promise. Peter is your example. Solemnly testify and exhort. Be diligent about it. And know that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, will be abundantly opened, supplied to you. This is what keeps us walking straight, the straight and narrow, like the Bible teaches us. It's like... These, these two messages that Peter says in our text and elsewhere are like, I was thinking, sort of like rigging on a ship or something like that. We have one side that we pull on of holy confidence that keeps us from swinging into the pit of despair. And on the other side, we have the rope of expectation and what God demands from us to keep us from sinful presumption. And those two things work together to keep us walking as we ought to walk. The promises for you and for your children, therefore, be saved from this perverse and crooked generation. Let's pray.